So you're back at work, finally. It's about time. Yeah, I know. It's exhausting. I have to, like, leave the house and go into another building and... Get dressed properly. Get dressed properly, yeah. It's... How's it been? We only go for an hour <laughs> because they have to, like, limit the amount of time we're all singing in a room together and they have to clean the room out. And But it's actually quite nice. What was the ruling on whether you have to sing wearing masks or not? We are not singing with masks. They have a very, very uh, complicated protocol and we have like six metres around us. So uh, we're nowhere near anyone else. Hopefully that's enough. Only time will tell. <laughs> it's really nice to do, but also there are lots of challenges ahead because we're currently singing from the audience seating. So there would definitely be no space to have any audience in here. So it's kind of just rehearsing in the hope that at some point we might be able to perform more normally. Fingers crossed. How's your week been? Um, good. I've already told you about this, but I've been foraging in the bushes, listeners, for elderflowers, which I've made into a delicious flowery drink. It's great. I feel very connected with nature this week. I've basically turned into some kind of woodland gnome. Are you sure they were elderflowers and not <laughs> something poisonous? I'm not really that good with nature stuff, so I'm not 100% sure, but it smells right and it tastes really good, so I'm going to drink it all up. If I'm not here next week, you know why. <laughs> Sorry, that's a bit dark. It is. Death by fake elderflower. I always thought that elderflower cordial was like a typically British thing, but um, I actually looked it up and it's popular across all of the uh, former Roman Empire territory. It's the quintessential European drink, we just didn't know it. What are we talking about on the show this week, Dominic? Coming up on the show this week, we have an interview about food in communist Bulgaria with the food historian and writer Albena Shkodrova. Albena has amazing stories to tell about rebellious cooks. It's a phenomenon whereby women living under the communist regime in Bulgaria would create and share homemade cookbooks amongst themselves. We'll be talking about what was subversive about this seemingly innocent act, and we'll discuss the striking characteristics of food in Bulgaria during the long communist rule. But before we get to that, you've got a little apology to make, haven't you? I do. I'm sorry, everyone. Um, this is an apology specifically to our Czech listeners, because last week, it turns out I did that thing that we've done previously on this podcast, where I mean to call someone the prime minister and accidentally call them the president. Uh, in this case, with Andrei Babish, the Czech prime minister. <sighs> Thank you very much to listener Avichka for pointing out my mistake. This is really frustrating, because in this case, I was actually thinking to myself, don't say president, don't say president. And I just said president. It's very annoying. It's a shame they're both P words, hey? It's very hard. <laughs> I'm going to make myself like a kind of swear jar and like every time I get something like that wrong, I'm going to put 20 euros in it. This needs to hurt. Well, while you're going and sitting in the corner facing the wall uh, <laughs> as a punishment, I'm going to start with a commemoration corner. This past weekend, we saw the 35th anniversary of the Schengen Agreement. The agreement passed on the 14th of June 1985, and it led to the abolition of Czechs along common borders. The Schengen area now includes 26 countries, 22 of which are EU member states. 420 million people during non-viral times are able to walk over a border without showing their passport or being asked why they're crossing a border. It's actually kind of amazing if you stop to think about it. 
The Schengen Agreement has never appeared as shaky as it has over the last few months because of you know what. But it feels fitting that this week the borders are starting to open up again and the people in Europe are slowly and hopefully carefully starting to cross borders a bit more freely again. We can come and see each other again. Yay. <laughs> you sound so enthused. Yeah, I still am too scared to get on a train, but um, most of my friends here and colleagues are doing it willy-nilly so I should be brave and visit you and actually this brings me neatly on to bad week um, because the corona enforced reinstating of most of the Schengen zone's borders albeit temporarily created a pretty bad boo-boo recently on the Polish-Czech border I'm giving bad week to Poland uh, after they admitted to accidentally invading the Czech Republic. Whoops. Yeah, whoops. It was apparently a misunderstanding. The Czech Republic and Poland are both part of the previously mentioned Schengen area. So in normal times, borders wouldn't need to be guarded at all. And perhaps that's why some Polish soldiers made a mistake and ended up moving a few dozen metres into Czech land building a roadblock and armed with machine guns they stopped some workers from getting access to a church that they are trying to restore at the moment. The church is actually in the Czech Republic not Poland so the Czech engineers really should have been able to get there. Czech authorities eventually had to get in touch with officials in Warsaw to ask the soldiers to back off and uh, give them their chapel back. And according to the BBC, the Czech authorities have yet to receive an official explanation as to how the fork this happened. My words, not theirs. How do you accidentally invade a country? It's quite hard. Yeah, well, apparently it's not that hard. Apparently you just need to like slightly misread a map, which is, I assume, what they did, although that's just speculation. Some of these borders are quite wiggly, so... It's also not totally clear how long the mistake lasted, but it does seem like it was more than a day, maybe three days, which is quite a long time to have invaded another country, accidentally or not. Fortunately, it resolved peacefully, and the main victims of this uh, invasion were the workers who wanted to take some photos of the church restoration process and... Also, a local group of uh, the Czech equivalent of Friends of the Earth who uh, had to cancel their meeting because they couldn't get to their meeting place. It's quite a low-key war so far. Yeah, possibly the most low-key war in history. But anyway, this isn't going to happen again for a while anyway, because the border between the Czech Republic and Poland is, as of this past weekend, open again. So that should give the soldiers a bit of time to study their maps and... Make sure they don't do any accidental invading again, please. I love this story. This is the best accident we've talked about on this podcast since. Do you remember when we talked about that pilot at Amsterdam Airport who was trying to show the intern how to do a security <laughs> alert to warn that a plane had been hijacked? Except he actually pressed the button. That is terrible. And it also, uh... this story reminds me of all this amazing uh, amazing stories that have been coming out of Bala Nassau, which is this uh, town that borders the Netherlands and Belgium with really wiggly border going through it. Sometimes the border goes through shops and bars and because there have been different C-word regulations in Belgium and the Netherlands, sometimes half of a shop has been allowed to be open but the other half of it not and you could only buy the things that happened to be in that half of the shop. Sounds like the stuff of like some sort of surrealist play. It is and yet most of the time borders aren't a thing in a lot of 
continental Europe because of the Schengen Agreement. So, yeah, let's go back to wishing happy birthday to Schengen. Happy birthday, Schengen. But um, actually, while we've been talking about Poland, I also felt like I couldn't let this week go without um, talking about something a bit more serious. Uh, obviously, an accidental invasion is serious, but yeah, this was a bit of a funny accidental inv- invasion. Um, and I wanted to call out President Andre Duda for the horrific homophobic campaign speech that he gave this weekend in which he said that his parents had fought against communism and, quote, they didn't fight for this so that a new ideology would appear that is even more destructive. So what he's describing there as a new ideology is the fight for LGBTQ rights. It's depressing and this kind of campaigning is sadly not that uncommon in Polish politics. But this speech dripping in homophobia was particularly disturbing, even by Duda's standards. If you want to learn more about what it's like to be fighting for your rights in Poland, then listen to our episode from October last year called Toxic Elements, in which we interviewed the Polish writer Jacek Denel about his experience as a gay man in Poland. I think I need a good week now, please. Good week. I am giving good week to Swedish prosecutors who have finally put to bed their investigation into the assassination of Prime Minister Olof Palmer after 34 years. Palmer was shot in the back in Stockholm as he was walking home from the cinema with his wife one evening in 1986. He'd often moved around without bodyguards. He liked trying to have a life that was as normal as possible. The murderer was able to get away. And for the last three decades, this killing has been this massive event, really, in Sweden's national psyche. It was just this profoundly shocking killing in a country that likes to think of itself as one of the most peaceful and safe on the planet. And this killing has never been solved. It became this huge mystery. Olaf Palmer was the leader of the Social Democrats, and he really represented socialist values in Sweden. But that also meant that he had plenty of enemies. Weren't there quite a lot of conspiracy theories about who had killed him? Yeah, there were loads of different theories. Uh, One of the big ones that was around for years was that maybe his killing was connected to South Africa in some way, because Palmer was a really vocal opponent of apartheid. But there were loads of other theories too, like Maybe it was the CIA, or maybe it was Kurdish militants, or maybe, my favourite theory, maybe it was feminists working in cahoots with Scientologists. What? (laughs) This was an actual theory that went around for a while. Um, But yeah, the investigation went on for years in Sweden, and it was really heavily criticised for how it was handled. The police made a lot of mistakes, like they didn't properly fence off the crime scene just after the killing, and stuff didn't get properly documented. And it's just gone on and on and on. More than 10,000 people have been questioned over the years. There's been something like 20,000 different leads to investigate. And last week, finally, prosecutors were able to say that there is finally enough evidence to pin the crime on a man called Stig Engström. Engström was a graphic designer working at an insurance company. And he was questioned several times after the murder. He presented himself as a witness. The announcement this week that prosecutors think it was him, that didn't come as a massive surprise because a journalist called Thomas Pettersson had done some formidable reporting back in 2018 that showed pretty conclusively that Engström was likely the killer. He disagreed with Palmer politically. There was a link between him and this weapons dealer who also hated the prime minister and everything that he stood for. There were just numerous factors that had led this journalist to say, I think this was the guy. Engström died in the year 2000. He took his own life. So there isn't going to be a trial. The investigation is simply being closed. But the current prime minister, Stefan Löfven, has said that this murder has been like an open wound in Sweden and he hopes that this will allow the country to heal now. 
Did they end up finding any DNA evidence? No, they didn't find any DNA. Um, And they also don't have a specific murder weapon that they can say conclusively, this is the gun that killed him. But Palmer's son, Martin, is among uh, family members who've said, even though that is disappointing, that there isn't more conclusive evidence. He does think prosecutors have come to the right conclusion and it's a good thing that they've closed the case. I feel like a lot of the news reporting from this week didn't really get under the skin of the story. So if you're looking for something a little bit deeper, I can really recommend this Guardian long read about the murder. It was published last year, so it's only a little bit out of date. And I'll put the link to that in the show notes. I am a maker, bridge builder, connector of land and sea. I am free. Hold the mirror up to society and say, here it is. I couldn't stop writing and and telling. And I love it. Thought cannot be killed, but ideas resurrect. That's the Europe that we have to imagine. I'm Josephine Burton, Artistic Director of International Arts Organization Dash Arts. In our brand new podcast, we look at big questions through an artistic lens, exploring extraordinary art in extraordinary times. Currently, Dash is immersed in EU utopia, exploring what it means to be European. In our podcast, I set off on a journey to learn more about phenomenal European artists and their relevance today, such as theatre maker Tadej Kanto and actor Ingrid Bergman. The Dash Arts podcast is a place to experience new cultures and artists. At a time when movement is a challenge, let us transport you across borders and across time. Available on all major podcasting platforms, subscribe to the Dash Arts podcast to listen now. We have a new Patreon to thank, Laura Mannering, an old friend of mine from when I used to live in Hong Kong. Thank you, Laura. Yeah, and thank you to everyone who's continuing to support us on Patreon right now. We really couldn't carry on doing this without you. So if you'd like to support us um, with as little as $2 a month, then we'd be ever so grateful. We want to carry on making this podcast as a weekly show, and we can only do that with a bit of help from you guys. So thank you, Laura, and thank you, everyone else who continues to support us. What's next, Katie? What's next is a a great interview with Albana. I feel like a lot of people have been swapping recipes under lockdown. Is that just a thing that my friends and family have been doing or have yours been doing as well? Mine haven't so much, although I did get sent one of those like round robin email chains of a kind of recipe sharing thing. You know, one of those things like email the third person on the list. Oh, yeah. That kind of thing. And I'm always terrible and never do those things, but thought it was a nice idea. What's the 2020 version of what we're about to talk about with Albana? Something I only learned about very recently is that swapping recipes was a huge craze under communism, certainly in Bulgaria, but to some extent in other places in Eastern Europe too. And this craze for swapping recipes is the focus of a new book that's coming out next year, Rebellious Cooks. Albana is a historian who studies the history of food under communism. And why and how this practice became popular is a really fascinating story. So we gave her a ring to hear about it. You grew up in communist Bulgaria. Could you start by painting us a picture of what food was like at home? It was cooking that was basically from very simple ingredients. There was absolutely nothing that was even half processed, you know. Even I remember the potatoes arriving at home with uh, covered in mud. It was very laborious to cook. And now having a family myself and having also to cook on daily basis quite a lot. I keep being amazed how my mom actually was doing that day after day with such a... She never complained. She just did it. There wasn't like a very rich palette of of dishes that they would prepare. 
on the other hand, there was so much effort put into weekend meals or making something like baked stuff, cakes and all kinds of cookies and something that we call solenki, like salty sticks made of dough, all kinds of really like doughy, not very healthy, I guess, things. What was your favorite dish as a kid? You know what halva is or not? Ah, halva, like the sweet? It's a sweet kind of paste. I think it comes from Turkey. And we didn't have any kind of spreads for like chocolate paste or things like that. They didn't exist in Bulgaria. And that thing, it came in a can. They would put it on a... My, my aunt had this practice. She would put it on a, on a iron plate with a little bit of water and it would melt. So you spread that on, on bread That's instead of Nutella. Ooh, I might try that. That sounds delicious. <laughs> Actually, it's quite nice. It's really nice. So your mum was a big cook, but maybe if you'd been born a little bit earlier, perhaps, if I understand correctly, maybe she wouldn't have been cooking so much because there was this idea passed down from the communist state that, in fact, cooking was a patriarchal thing and there was a kind of a movement to dissuade women from cooking. This was very much part of the ideology, but I do not think that it ever had much um, consequences for the actual food practices in Bulgaria. As a matter of fact, I think nowhere in the communist bloc. Because actually the patriarchal order was quite preserved or re kind of rearranged and reconstructed in, in new settings. And women always kept, just kept cooking. And actually I found out that it was mostly a very thin social layer of the upper classes that could afford not to cook in the first place. There was no alternative also to cooking. So they just kept doing it. And one of the ways that cooking happened, one of the things that you write a lot about is this exchange of recipes uh, that the, became this kind of full-on social phenomenon. People would swap recipes all the time. Can you tell us a little bit about where this would happen and how it worked? I was actually amazed to find out that it was very popular. I mean, I was aware that it was popular because I've been seeing my mom having these little papers and, you know, with recipes written on them. But I wasn't aware how exceptionally widespread that was because um, the women with whom I made interviews about this actually testified that they traded recipes with complete strangers. They would do that on the tram or they would do that uh, while waiting in a queue in the shop or at the funeral or on the hospital bed. You know, in all completely weird circumstances, they actually exchanged recipes. Most of all, they did that, of course, they, uh, within their social circle at their workplace, because that was a change that occurred in communist times that all women practically got employed. So they all had their new environment independent from their family and their familial circles. And within that environment, they exchanged a lot of cookery advice. So part of these recipes, of course, are like office made very clearly because they are on a typewriter and then copied on a, on a Xerox machine, a copy machine. But part of them are also like written on all kinds of clutches of paper. And it's really funny because I've seen one on a, on a piece of wallpaper. Or there was a fine, a woman who worked for a while as um, she was doing the cleaning in a police department. So she had one of these forums for uh, fines written on the back that she had written her recipe. Or dentists, you know, or a ticket from a museum. So they were like really hastily written with anything that was at hand. So what was rebellious about the creation and sharing of these recipe books? 
It's an interesting question. Actually, I asked myself the question, was it, could it be that it was somehow rebellious? Because it really looked at the beginning a bit strange. But I did meet these women, these two women. One of them had really hidden political stuff with recipes because she thought that's the safest place to keep it. It was during the last years of communism and there was this movement, Ekoglasnost, that was the Bulgarian dissident movement. She had written the names of these people in her scrapbooks and the manifesto, their kind of founding document. And then I also found another scrapbook where there was also kind of a political um, poem written on the pages there. So I really was asking myself, could it be that in certain way there was some kind of political, ideological rebellion in the act of, of like exchanging so many recipes? But then when I started examining further the practice, I realized that there were many things that wouldn't make sense unless they were done in opposition to what was accepted by the system. For example, there were women who were uh, deliberately and with great passion collecting all kinds of foreign recipes. And you would say, okay, yes, but they probably needed this bread. But the thing is, they couldn't use these recipes because these recipes were with ingredients they even didn't know and they didn't exist in Bulgaria. Yet they collected them because the value of the recipes was that it came from somewhere else. It was, it was something that was forbidden and it, precisely for this reason it was interesting. And then the whole, the whole thing with cooking, not cooking, I was curious about how did they react to all these four words in the cookbooks, which were very political and would instruct them not to cook, but to use the industrially produced processed food. First of all, this food was not there. It was only on paper how rich was the produce that was available in the stores. But if you start talking further, there was this awareness, oh, women shouldn't cook. They were aware that there was this discourse that they were told not to cook. Do you think women, to some extent, used cooking as a kind of creative outlet and a way to express individuality, given that like the ways of doing that were fairly limited under communism? That was certainly the case. Actually, there was like political and economic and emotional reasons to pursue so zealously with cooking. One interesting, I think, combination of circumstances under communism which boosted this creative cooking was that on the one hand, in the late 50s, early 60s, the society reached certain levels of wealth. And within these levels of wealth, the notion of entertainment became again very popular. There was no other arena for social entertainment but homes, because restaurants were a few, they were not affordable, and they were also not particularly liked as an atmosphere. So people did this entertainment at home. But also I discovered that women found in that an extraordinary outlet for creativity, which they didn't find anywhere else. Because even if they were allowed to work, the society was remained quite gendered and it was men who were on the top positions. And then also it was like this notion of collectiveness, which made any success being promoted as collective and wouldn't allow any individual manifestation of creativity to be, I don't know, rewarded. So cooking was one of the few accessible to everyone, very democratic ways of actually showing who you are and showing your creativity and putting yourself into that. Am I right in thinking that cookbooks, like published cookbooks, did not exist in communist Bulgaria? They were banned. There were cookbooks, but they were much fewer 
for many reasons. Between 44, 1944 and 1947, it was a transition period, so still some cookbooks came out that were kind of belonged rather to the past. There was a lot of censorship that you can see there, because you can see these forwards that are kind of promoting already the communist ideology, but also you can see the recipes being adapted to the post-war well, modesty and soberness kind of of the time. And then there is a gap until 1956. Then there are some cookbooks published that were with... They suddenly became nutritionists and professionals, food technologists, the authors of cookbooks. So there was a lot of information on nutrition, on digestion. There is nothing about taste. If they ever speak about taste, it's always just to emphasize that taste is important for your digestion. This is also observed in Nazi cookbooks, for example. People are perceived as, as a workforce, and the food is treated as a fuel to this workforce. And that's very clear from the forewords, at least, but also sometimes from the recipes. But the kind of underground exchange of recipes, was it a specifically Bulgarian thing, or is there evidence that this happens like, throughout the communist world? It hasn't been surveyed in, in like quantitative way. But from what I hear also from my colleagues from, for example, Latvia or Estonia or from uh, Poland or GDR, it seems to have been quite the same. There was this differentiation between what the state has to offer and what the community has to offer. It was them and us. Albania has two books coming out in English over the next year. Um, but if you speak Bulgarian, then go out immediately and buy a copy of Communist Gourmet um, from your local independent bookshop. Those of us wanting to read it in English will have to wait another six months or so. And uh, her newest book, Rebellious Cooks, will be released in spring next year by Bloomsbury. We got a sneak preview of the first chapter of that book, and it's a great read. What else have you been reading or watching this week? Ooh. What's your isolation inspiration? I've been consuming quite a lot of cultural inspiration this week. Um, I loved Leanne Le Havis's Tiny Desk concert from her home in London. Um, you know that NPR series where people do little so concerts. Nice. They are nice from the desk, which is clearly not someone's actual desk. I always look at that desk and think it needs a really good dusting. Oh, really? She's covered in stuff. Somebody dust it. I didn't realise you were a clean freak. It wasn't until now. But yeah, they're doing them just from people's homes now. And Leanne Le Havis, if you don't know who she is, then go and check her out. She's my fave. I also started watching this new Netflix series uh, called The Woods. Oh, yeah. Which is a Polish Netflix series based on a story by the American mystery writer Harlan Coben. There are some other Netflix adaptations of his books, some English ones, actually. But uh, this Polish series, I watched the first episode and I am intrigued. Mm. It's spooky. I don't normally like spooky stuff, but I'll check it out. Neither do I. But I could deal with it. It's just spooky enough for me without putting me off. Um, what about you? What have you been enjoying? I watched a really moving film on Arte, Europe's finest arty farty TV channel. They actually do great stuff. I shouldn't be mean about it. Um, I watched a great French film on Arte called On Achève Bien Écrou, which is a documentary by the writer Gabriel Dédier about what it's like to be fat in France, a country that is, of course, notorious for putting pressure on women about their appearance. It's just a really brave and beautiful film. And it's got subtitles in a bunch of different languages, I think. So I really recommend it. Sounds great. 
I also watched a, a live stream of an, of an interview with the American philosopher Susan Nyman from De Bali, which is a debating place in Amsterdam. They've got a new series featuring people of Europe. And she's American, but recently became German. And she was talking really interestingly about Europe and comparing it to America and saying that we really don't realize how good we've got it here, even though it's an imperfect version of good. But yeah, it's something quite different. Could be worse. Yeah. She also has quite an interesting take on Bernie Sanders. She describes him as having a program that's to the right of most Christian democratic parties in Europe. And mm. she thinks he's like a right wing social democrat, <laughs> which was quite an unusual take. But maybe if you look at it in the European lens, maybe there is some truth in that. Anyway, I think that counts as culture. It's from a debating center. Is that culture? I think so. Good. My happy ending this week made me very happy, even if it's a bit weird and ethically questionable, maybe. A woman has managed to hatch some ducklings from some eggs that she bought at Waitrose. I knew you were going to pick this story. You've been obsessed with this story all week. Yeah. Now, if you're not from the UK, then um, you should know that Waitrose is probably the fanciest supermarket around Um How would you describe it? You can buy like guinea fowl and stuff there. You can, and you can buy duck eggs. But it's not so fancy that you'd expect your duck eggs to arrive at home, fertilised, ready to um, hatch. There are quite a few things to unpick here. Firstly, I reckon a lot of you are probably asking, can this just happen in my fridge? And the answer is no. Um, The eggs were deliberately incubated by the woman who bought them. And does this work with any eggs? No. Almost any egg you buy at the supermarket, be it duck eggs or chicken eggs, they'll arrive unfertilized. Actually, the farm where these eggs came from reacted to this story in a bit of disbelief as they work hard to separate the female ducks from the male ducks. So the eggs shouldn't have been able to grow little baby ducklings and they shouldn't have been fertilized. So there have been some kind of like illicit encounter between a male and female duck. Yeah, apparently. But also, uh, I read that ducks can be quite difficult to distinguish between male and female ducks. So sometimes they might accidentally have a male duck there, um, creating the potential for some fertilization. And yes, it is totally fine to eat fertilized eggs, just in case any of you were worried about that. The woman who managed to make this work is called Charlie Lello. And the only reason why she did it was because she's furloughed from her job at the moment. So she's at home a lot and thought, ah, I can do this. I've got some time to give them the care and attention they needed. And she already has chickens at home. So she's clearly pretty well set up to care for these little babies. Charlie said to the BBC that they were the cutest little balls of fluff, but she pointed out that she would never have attempted this in normal times because it wouldn't have been fair, as they need so much attention. She's named them Beep, Peep and Meep, and apparently it only took a month of incubation before Charlie heard a little squeak from the eggs and the ducks started breaking out of their shell. It's taken me longer to grow... A single beetroot on my roof terrace. So, kudos, Charlie. Very nice. The article was published with the most adorable photo of the ducklings standing next to the egg box that they'd arrived in from the supermarket. Oh, 
bit sinister, though. There is something sinister about it, isn't it? Isn't there? Or it just makes you think, oh, I'm eating what should have been a chicken or a duck. Yeah, I said at the beginning of this that it's, it's ethically questionable, but I think maybe the thing is that it makes us question our ethics of whether we should be eating these eggs. Eggs are unfortunately delicious, though. That's the problem. They are. I love eggs. Be a terrible vegan. Next week, we're going to be talking about whether or not Europeans have been nice to each other recently. We've been really nice to each other. Spoiler alert. In the meantime, if you'd like to hang out with us on social media, we're around. We're on Twitter at EuropeansPod, Instagram at EuropeansPodcast, and Facebook. If you type in the Europeans Podcast, you'll find us. Anyway, in the meantime, have a good week and carry on being nice to each other, Europeans. <laughs>